Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Welcome to the Great Woman in Compliance podcast with Lisa Fine and Mary Shirley. I'm Mary, and today I'm pleased to have Sue Scott as our guest. Welcome, Sue. Please tell us about yourself. Thank you very much, Mary, for inviting me on to your podcast, first of all. So a little bit about me. I help risk and compliance professionals to reconnect with how they how they make a difference in the world through their work so that they feel empowered and they can lead change. That's what I do now, essentially leadership coach and team coach. But two years ago, I was working in financial services and my role was head of anti-bribery and corruption for the group at HSBC. And I had been with HSBC for 20 years, starting out as a in a compliance role and doing operational risk, and then finally hitting the world of financial crime on a big remediation program that HSBC was going through. I grew up in South Africa. You may detect a little accent every now and then coming in, but I think I've spent more years living in London now than I ever did in Johannesburg. Yeah, that, that's me. Wonderful. I didn't get any twigs of South Africa until now with you confirming it. So it certainly sounds like the English accent has taken over. I'd love to hear what's the number one thing that you learned as a compliance practitioner that continues to serve you well today in your life after compliance? So it's a great question. I think one of the things that I learned in my compliance career was strategic thinking. I think people sometimes associate compliance with getting down in the weeds and in the detail. And there is that, but we're problem solvers. And so for me, it was, what is the problem? What is the risk we're trying to mitigate here? What's the impact that we're trying to make? And what's the result we want to end up with? So really that kind of change process. And I use that framework all the time in my coaching. And it helps me as well. I do it with a bit of a future pacing. Where am I trying to get to, Sue? Let's just work out stepping back from the future. You know, what's the problem? What am I trying to solve? And let me get myself to, to, to today and taking that very next step. So that, I think, is a framework that's helped me a lot. Wonderful. Thank you. And uh, obviously, with a transition, there are a lot of thoughts that go through our mind and that assist us with our decision making. What were the considerations that went through your mind when you were making this, the decision to transition to something different from being a compliance practitioner? I think back, I started using coaching years and years ago as part of leadership capability. Mm. And in fact, I did some my first training as a coach back in 2016. So it was there. And my coach would say to me, you could do this. You could be a coach. So you are a coach. You're leading as a coach. And so in the down times at work, when I was feeling a bit demotivated, I'd be thinking, oh, this coaching thing, I really love this. But I never really saw myself as running running my own business. And I think it wasn't until 2020 when we were going through a reorganization at work and mm -hmm. my role got put at risk along with uh, a few other people in my team. And then the whole thing was delayed because of the pandemic. And I had to sit with the information 
that I was being put at risk. I was going to be made redundant and I also had to make other people on the team. It was quite a difficult year for me. Mm-hmm. Emotionally, it was really draining. It didn't sit well with me to hold this information. It was obviously confidential at the time and it, it didn't sit well with me having to hang on to this, what felt like a big secret. I started to think about and what else? So mm-hmm. it wasn't exactly a moment in time, but Mm. suddenly the door, having been at HSBC for 20 years and really loved my job and Mm. the organization, suddenly somebody had opened the door and I thought, what else could I be doing? Mm. I think what was important there was I already had skills and I already had a lot of a good network and I already had an idea of the kinds of people I'd like to help. Mm. And, And so I suddenly thought, actually, why don't I just why don't I just take a bit of a break from the corporate world and try this coaching thing out? And once I started exploring that, it just felt right. Mm-hmm. So when the whole reorganization started to come back in, in onto the agenda, I'd already made up my mind and mm-hmm. my heart was definitely not in staying. Mm-hmm. And, and I had the luxury of some time with my notice period, mm-hmm. figure a few things out, mm-hmm. and I just went for it. And mm-hmm. yeah, I left HSBC in February 21 and I had my first client a month later and mm-hmm. I just went from there. It was just Wonderful. brilliant, really brilliant. Do you think that, so there was no defining moment or line in the sand drawn and almost the buffer period of deciding, oh, I'll take a break for a bit and I'll see how things go, that perhaps allowing yourself the not fully committing to abruptly starting something new helped you with your decision making and it was a wise move to do it that way? Yeah, I think sometimes when we're making career changes in the corporate world, it it can feel like a step up and a step up or a step sideways. And they seem like quite sudden moves, but Mm. quite often there's a lot that goes behind that. And I think that was true for this pivot as well. And somebody recommended to me a fantastic book, a lady called Herminia Ibarra, uh, Working Identity. This book really epitomized what I was going through, where I wasn't quite sure how it was all going to work. But she talks about this experimental period where you're trying things out. And that's literally, I spent six months trying things out. And I would say I haven't totally landed mm. in in exactly what I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life. But that's part of the joy. Mm. I have what what is now, I think the term is a portfolio career. So I pick and choose things that I'd like to do. So I don't just do the coaching. I can also step back into my old world and do some consulting. I'm writing role modeling, role modeling you and Lisa. (laughs) But yeah, and I'm exploring that creative side of me, which was suppressed for a long time in working in that corporate environment. What's some of the writing that you're doing? I'm really spending time looking at coaching and the coaching Mm -hmm. frameworks and the problems that people have. So for me at the moment, it's exploring through writing posts, a lot of reflection and just what got me here? Because I wouldn't have imagined if you'd have said to me two years ago, you know, I would be running my own business. Mm. I would have thought you were absolutely bonkers, Mm. but somehow it just feels so natural. And I think there's a lot of people out there who think about what next for them or what else could they be doing when they're in that corporate environment. And and actually there, there are a lot of options. So I'm writing about that. Great. I think side hustles and volunteering are a really good way to explore some of the additional areas in which you can serve. If you're choosing to send the elevator back down, 
in a not-for-profit way, but also side hustles in a way that can earn you a, a bit of extra pocket money are also an opportunity to see what else is out there and do something different. Great. That sounds really good. What are some of the trends that you are noticing at the moment in coaching clients? Is there anything in particular with the women that you coach? So that's a good one. The so I don't focus on 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 just coaching women. I like to be inclusive and I have a sort of equal number of men and women and it's it's very interesting because for the women I think what I'm seeing is quite a lot of overwhelm, fatigue, mm. guilt especially mm-hmm. for mums, because mm-hmm. if they've had children struggling through the pandemic, which I think mm-hmm. is a common thing that I hear among my female clients who are parents, trying to juggle work and looking after their children, especially as everybody I'm working with is working in that hybrid environment. And what do you do? You don't, you can't lock your child out of your study when you're working. That doesn't mm-hmm. work. And I think a tendency for women to, because they're getting into a bit of the detail and being pleasers, that that is just feeding on that. I'm not good enough. I'm not achieving. I'm not being all things to all people. Whereas with the, the men that I coach, Uh, what I'm seeing is more a case of a little bit more of a restlessness coming Mm. out of the pandemic of, so what's this all about? And then is there something more and how am I making a difference? So yes, a a different kind of a dynamic going on there, but equally they all come back to kind of some kind of narrative that we've got going on in our heads. And in the end, even, even with all this that's going on with the women that I coach, it will often come back to a need to be making a difference, mm. feeling that they should be able to do more, mm. albeit they're coming at it from slightly different, slightly different negative narratives. Dear listener, for uh, next episode after Sue's that is being recorded, it's with Karina Volmer, and one of the topics that we have slated to discuss is mum guilt. Um, so we'll build on this conversation. And Sue, I just wondered if you might have some advice. I know that Lisa, my podcast spouse is someone who loves to give back and I sense that a lot of the time she wishes that she could be doing more and would like to be able to but of course time is a limited resource so is energy what are some of the things that you put to your clients when they're in when they've expressly told you that's what they're struggling with the desire to do more but not perhaps feeling able to so I think it's interesting because for me, getting back to how you do more, it's not a doing thing, it's a being. And so spending some time actually perhaps going back to the things that motivate you, which can come back, is often rooted in our childhood experiences and literally looking at those pivotal moments in your life where you were really at your best, you were learning something in your zone, however you want to put it. If you go back through your life and actually do some reflection on that, I think that starts to uncover where your heart lies and how how you could approach doing something bigger than yourself because you are already big and Mm. you are already doing something bigger than yourself. You are already making a difference. The question is, how do you attach that feeling and really re-energize yourself in the down times when you're stuck in the detail or whatever. Yeah. And also really thinking about 
what you're telling yourself. Because I think sometimes we have a tendency to tell ourselves things are difficult. I don't know what I want to do. I don't know how I make a difference. Mm -hmm. And that for me is a story that we tell ourselves, which might not be. Nice point there. For me, I have found that reassessing the status quo. So what I'm doing at the moment and asking myself, is there something I want to step off in order to create room for something else? Because a lot of the time just adding more stuff isn't super helpful, but we also need to create opportunities for others. If you've been volunteering somewhere or held a position for some time, an officer position, you could be giving someone else an opportunity to get some experience or enjoy that area and you make the decision to allow space for something else that you've been meaning to do, but perhaps otherwise couldn't fit in. Yes, that's a, if you say yes to this, what do you need to say no to kind of question. <laughs> and so I was going to ask you, what powerful coaching question do you love in, in your space? And I think that's a good one, the one that you just mentioned. Yeah, that mm. I definitely think for anyone who's feeling a little bit overwhelmed, the next, and one of my favorite coaching authors is uh, Michael Bungay-Stanian. Mm. He has, a, anybody who's interested in understanding a little bit about more about coaching he has a brilliant book called The Coaching Habit, which mm. I rec I recommend to loads of people. But he, one of his key questions in there, he breaks down the whole coaching framework into seven questions. But one of them is, if I say yes to this, mm -hmm. what am I saying no to? Mm. And then actually, when you're in meetings or you're with your line manager and they're piling on the work and you're struggling to say no, you can actually turn that to them and say, if I say yes to this, what would you like me to say no to in this mm -hmm. pile of things that I've got going mm -hmm. on? And you can actually get some help with actually just making sure you're, you're focused on the right priorities as well. Mm -hmm. It is a very powerful and yet simple question. Yeah, and I think it's an asset-based one as well that doesn't give a negative impression to your manager that, oh, you don't want to be doing something. It's thank you for letting me know that uh, this is important to you. Please, could you give me some assistance with prioritization in light of all the other things that we've got going on, all the other plates that are spinning. As you look back over your 20 years with HSBC, what's the most impactful and memorable compliance initiative that sticks out in your mind? In 2012, HSBC got a $1.9 billion fine for AML deficiencies, anti-money laundering deficiencies. And what that springboarded us into was an enormous remediation program. Mm. Now, I'd always through my career in HSBC worked in areas like policy and training, and I'd worked on lots of projects and things. But this one was the mummy and daddy of all projects. And it brought together, if you think about that organization at the time, there was probably a quarter of a million employees. It brought the organization together with a very common goal to sort mm -hmm. this problem out, something I'd not really experienced before with four lines mm -hmm. of business, all the regions. We were in 70 countries, 40 million plus clients, customers. And that common goal really united the organization. And I met so many brilliant people working on that program. It still makes me feel so proud today of what the organization achieved in turning mm -hmm. things around, but also just in in the people. People were mm -hmm. amazing during that time, mm -hmm. actually uh, really changed the way BC operated and 
that sort of collective endeavor. I think that would have been, that is my, and it, it was a very long project to keep that energy going all that time. It just, there was a level of commitment there that, that I just, I, it's, it was definitely one of the most rewarding experiences mm-hmm. albeit it started out on a with a very with a with an enormous fine mm-hmm. it was a very reward and I think you'll find a lot of people in HSBC when mm-hmm. they talk about that time it was a very unifying experience yeah I am familiar with something similar and I think companies in crisis it's a lot of hard work when you are on a compliance department that is helping navigate a company through regulatory scrutiny and the settlement aftermath and I've often wondered how do we replicate that benefit in an incentive based way moving forward. One of the great opportunities that you have when you're working for a company in crisis is that suddenly there's budget, suddenly there's resource, extra pairs of hands, and the organization genuinely buys into it. They understand why it is that we're focusing on compliance and they won't argue with you about that essentially. And I I think that is a huge benefit. And so when considering that we can't always be working for companies in crisis. And frankly, I would have to think I need a a little break for the next step afterwards. How do we replicate that working towards a common goal, unified task force, buy-in resource when we're not a company in crisis? It is such a great question. I think one of the challenges really for humanity is we only seem to sort things out Mm. When we are at crisis point, witness climate change, and we're all mm-hmm. just staring into the abyss. Um, <laughs> but mm-hmm. until my house gets flooded and I'm mm-hmm. seeing it go off down the road somewhere, going to am I actually going to stop mm. doing the things that contribute to that? I think mm. it's a real challenge, and and maybe the answer is in looking at how we deal with conflict and how we how we resolve these challenges in crisis is we look for the common ground, the mm. thing that we can all unite on, mm. and maybe we need to really focus on that in the good times. Where are we all absolutely united and what are we all motivated around and and do more of that? Because it it is motivating when you're all heading in the same direction, Mm -hmm. crisis or no crisis, that can create its own energy. But yes, I think it's, it is a real challenge for organizations, but it's a challenge for us as individuals as well. And I would, this actually, what you were saying reminds me of a conversation I had with one of my friends who's a coach outside of the compliance space and something that she re- reframed for me. And I think it's entirely true. I used to think that I would only ever go to a coach for, I guess, times when I'm in crisis as a leader, as an employee, as a person. And she said to me, actually, Mary, you don't need to have anything wrong. In fact, coaching when coming from a place of strength can be incredibly powerful. And so I leave that for you, dear listener, to consider that if everything's going great guns for you right now, it may be that you consider a coach to be someone who is good for helping you through an emergency situation, a very dramatic negative situation, but also consider coaching if you're already flying high and want to continue escalating and achieving. Mm, Sue, I think you'd agree? Yeah. 
Yeah, get to the next level. What's the next level for you? (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you so much for that, Sue. And just to wrap up today's episode, I want to share some of the recent statistics that we're seeing in the compliance space and what that means for us in terms of potentially a culture of integrity crisis. So Navex Global's latest statistics are reporting that cases of harassment, discrimination and retaliation, those instances of complaints through hotlines are all up and then perhaps even more worryingly, substantiated cases of all three of those issues also up. The Ethics and Compliance Initiatives uh, recent report, they are showing substantiated retaliation up from 79% to 82%, absolutely unforgivable. As we come out of the pandemic, we are suffering the effects of potentially, Carrie Penman from Navex has said, people just don't know how to deal with each other anymore. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. And this data backs it up. So what does that mean for us as compliance? The first thing, and I would say this is super preachy of me, but just bear with me for a moment, is to take a look in the mirror and ask ourselves if we're a little lacking on patience, being short with our colleagues in society and our homes. And remember that we need to be the ones role modeling ethics and integrity, perhaps the most, because nothing is more of a turn off to colleagues, in my observations, than hypocrisy, particularly out of the compliance department. And then perhaps more substantively, this data is a wonderful nudge to us that with a potential culture of integrity crisis, we now need to dust off or recreate our speaker training in terms of how managers can receive reports in a way that helps the organization not to be perceived as retaliating against those who are speaking up. Managers do need training on this and they do need training on what can constitute retaliation. It's not just a pay decrease. It's not just a termination of someone. It can be exclusion, ignoring, less desirable work tasks, damage to property, individual owns. All these types of things can constitute retaliation. So my advice is to hold a management training which walks our managers step-by-step through how to receive a report. And then, of course, because when we're in a moment where perhaps someone comes to us with a report, we may not remember that training uh, step by step. So provide them with a quick reference sheet afterwards. I like to do an infographic, which has broad headings as little reminders and prompts, basically acting as a checklist so that the manager can go over it when they're in the situation with the employee. And here is the twist. While branding it a management training, I would encourage you to invite all staff. And that's for a number of reasons. The first thing is that our colleagues see us holding management accountable for our principle and our zero tolerance for non-retaliation. They can see us holding the managers accountable. Second of all, our independent contributors in the business are our leaders of tomorrow. It's never too early to learn. And thirdly, in cases like exclusion, particularly in department social events or ignoring of colleagues, that retaliation can be doled out by 
anyone, not just managers. And it can be particularly hurtful when your peers are treating you poorly. So we need for all colleagues to see what retaliation can look like, one, so that they can identify it if they're the ones being subject to it, and two, so that they're aware of what their actions may be that could constitute retaliation as well. So there's no better time than now, unless you've already issued one of these communications and awareness programs last week, I would recommend getting onto it. And especially if you work for a medium-sized company, ECI's data has retaliation substantiated for medium-sized companies at a whopping 90% right now. This is urgent. This is important. You can make a last hit for the last quarter of the year, the rest of the year that we have, and a strong start for 2023 by focusing on non-retaliation. Let's get those figures down. Let's get that faith and belief in our processes back on track. Thank you so very much for joining us today. On behalf of Sue, Lisa, and myself, thank you for your time, for your company. I know that we we come along on dog walks with you. We are part of your fitness regimes, your commutes. So hello, hello to Walter Johnson in your car and all of the rest of our listeners. We so appreciate you. And as always, if you have any feedback for Lisa and myself um, or Sue, uh, please don't hesitate to get in touch. We look forward to hearing from you and wish you a fantastic rest of your day. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review. 